We are continuing our series in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 to 17 of chapter 12. So please uh, open there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, take this home with you. We even have a little note right in the front that says it's okay for you to take it home with you if you have a guilt complex. So it's there. If you're using that Bible, it's on page 1008. 1008. And we're looking at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 to 17. Now, at Maple Avenue, we believe this is what we're here for. The Bible, not the preacher. And so one of the things we do, I don't make you stand during my sermon, not just because it's really long, but also because you're not here to hear me, but we do stand for God's word. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 12, verses 4 to 17. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping knees and strengthen your, sorry, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You can be seated as we pray. Father, I think I speak for many of us, When I say, I know I need your word this morning. This word that we've just read, I need your spirit to work in my heart and my soul, helping me really understand it, to own it,
Spirit to pervade who I am. And that is our collective prayer too. We are looking to you. We are asking you to work in our midst that your word would have its effect. That is our collective prayer as we come to your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A little known fact about me is that I played Tevya in our high school musical production of The Fiddler on the Roof. One of the best scenes in that musical is when the town butcher comes to Tevya to ask him if he can marry one of his five daughters. But Tevya thinks Laser Wolf the butcher wants to buy one of his dairy cows. So it goes like this. Laser Wolf. I suppose you know why I wanted to see you. Tevya. Oh, yes, I do, but... Uh, laser. There's no use talking about it. Tevya. Uh, Tevya. I understand how you feel. Tevya. But... Uh, laser Wolf. After all, you have a few more without her. Tevya. Ah, I see. Today you want one. Tomorrow you may want two. Two? What would I do with two? The same as you do with one. Oh, Tevya, this is very important to me. Why is it so important to you? Frankly, because I'm lonely. Lonely? Reb Laser, what are you talking about? How can a little cow keep you company? Little cow? Is that what you call her? But that's what she is! What are you talking about? Don't you know? Tevya, of course I know. We're talking about my new milk cow, the one you want to buy from me. Laser Wolf, a milk cow? A milk cow so I won't be lonely. I'm, I'm talking about your daughter. Your daughter, Seidel. Sometimes we've realized that we've been looking at something completely wrong. Sometimes seeing things for the first time, seeing them from the right perspective, is a game changer. And that's what I believe will happen for many of us today. That's been my prayer. I pray that God's word will transform the way we think about hardship in our lives. Because I believe that many of us have been looking at our hardship from a wrong angle or the wrong perspective. I know that was true for the people to whom Hebrews was written. They were a beleaguered, beaten-down church. As verse 4 points out, though they hadn't endured as much as the martyrs, or Jesus for that matter, they'd had a hard go of it in their struggle to fight sin. And God had a word for these beaten-down Christians, a word that was intended to transform their whole way of thinking. And we're going to see what that word is in verses 5 to 11. 
And then we're going to see two implications of that word in verses 12 to 17. So that's our two main breaks, 5 to 11 and 12 to 17. So let's look at what that word is to them in verses 5 to 11. Now again, I believe that what's here in these verses could be paradigm shifting for how we think about the hardship that is in our lives. Now, it shouldn't surprise us since we've been in the book of Hebrews that the author of Hebrews, when he wants to teach us something, goes back to the Old Testament. And this time's no exception. So this time he goes back to the book of Proverbs and he quotes from chapter 3. In English, it's just two sentences there in verses 5 and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Sentence 1. Sentence 2, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The first sentence is a command. Don't take God's discipline lightly. Don't let it make you weary. And that point will get borne out in verses 12 to 17. The second sentence is the reason for that. Because God's discipline is rooted in love, and it's a sign we belong to Him. And that's what's explained in verses 7 to 11. Now before we go on, I want to clarify what the word discipline means in this passage. Because there's different kinds of disciplines. Once when I was a kid, I punched my dad in the face bad move. I still remember the consequences to this day. That's one kind of discipline. It's primarily punitive. It's good and it's just, but it's primarily done in response to something very bad that we've done. But there's another kind of discipline. It's the kind your personal trainer exerts on you when you're trying to go from couch potato to 5K. It's the kind a mother uses when she's trying to help her son stop picking his boogers. It's still trying to change behavior, but it's not punitive. It's primarily formative. And it's that second kind of discipline that's in mind here. So if you read this passage and you think, whoa, these people sin really bad, so God has to punish them because he loves them and he wants them to repent, then we're actually reading this section wrong. Now, God does, in the Scriptures, punish that way. But that's not what's going on in our passage. In our passage, as best as I can tell, the word discipline is used in the formative or training sense. And I believe that not only because that's the context for the Proverbs quote, but also because of verse 7. You see verse 7? It is for discipline that you have to endure. The key word there is endure, because in verses 1 to 3, the word endure is something that both we and Jesus do when we face hardship. And as verse 4 points out, 
some of the hardship was actually due to fighting sin, resisting it. So the struggles they have to endure are not primarily due to their sin. And so verse 7 says, it's for discipline that you have to endure. In other words, the hardship that you're enduring is God's way of disciplining or training you. God is using the hardship to form them. To make that even more clear, notice over and over again in our passage the intent God has for the discipline. So the beginning of verse 10, or actually partway through verse 10, it is for our good. And then right after that, that we may share His holiness. Or verse 11, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I hope what you're seeing is that these Christians didn't commit some blatant, hard-hearted sin that prompted God and His justice to inflict some hardship on them. Instead, what's going on here is God begins with a heart to want them to grow. His heart is for their good. And so He allows hardship in their life for that purpose. And that's what we mean by discipline here. And then the dominant analogy picked up from the Proverbs quote is parenting. So verse 10 points out two things about our earthly fathers. First, they disciplined us for a short time. Second, they disciplined us as, quote, seems best to them. Now, as a dad, I love that phrase. I know exactly what it means. Because I've gotten into the car only to hear from the one in the back how the one in the front did such and such, to which the one in the front points out that the one in the back did so and so, to which the one sitting next to the one in the front chimes in and adds that the one in the back did thus and thus, to which the one in the back responds to the third child that she did this and that. And so I'm left to discipline in a way that seems best to me. We do our best, don't we, dads? But even our best fails to balance the scales of justice. So our earthly fathers have a decade or so to discipline us. And even though they try and do it well, they do it imperfectly. And yet, despite that, a father's discipline is almost universally respected across time and across cultures. Well, if that's true, then think about God's discipline. It tells us that He is the Father of spirits. That is to say, He is the Father of the spiritual realm, not just this temporal, earthly realm. And He disciplines us so that we can live His discipline is perfect. And so the argument in verses 7 through 10 is that we should welcome such discipline 
as a sign that we are true sons of God. Listen as I pick up in the middle of verse 7. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. See what he's saying? The good, loving father is bringing these things, these hardships, into our lives because he loves us and because it's for our good. And so we should welcome it. Verses 5 to 11 are telling us that our hardship comes from a loving father, a father that we can trust, who is using it for our good. Now, with that as kind of a backdrop of understanding verses 5 to 11, I want to tighten down the screw a little bit now and just see how that changes our paradigm about how we view hardship. See, the author is writing to a group of Christians who are struggling under intense hardship, and the author doesn't talk about the reasons for evil in this world. He doesn't point them point out to them that the hardships are just for a season and eventually there'll be a reward. He doesn't give them three steps to avoiding bitterness. Instead, what the author does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is points them to God's character. You're going through hard times. Let me tell you about God. He is a good and loving Father. He tells them that hardship is something a good God has brought about upon them for their good. Now theologically, that sounds pretty straightforward to us. It's not all that paradigm shifting. But at a street level, most of us think about hardship as some negative thing in our lives. So I want to just unpack that a little, the street level. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, just in our deepest core, our goal for our own lives is something like this. Comfort. Ease. Happiness. Stability. In light of our desire for those things, why do we follow God? so that he can make our lives a bit more comfortable, a bit easier, a bit happier, bring a little more stability. And what means should God use to help us accomplish these goals? We expect him to steer us around hardship, to alleviate our our suffering to maneuver us through the course of our life so that we have as little heartache as possible. That's how most of us think. Though for some of us, perhaps it's unconscious. And so, when hardship, particularly intense hardship, 
that's unrelenting shows up, it confuses us. That's not what I bargained for. What is God doing? And it leaves us with two options. Perhaps God is distant, far off, uninvolved, unconcerned about my life, or even not real at all. Either that, or he's something of a smiting, miserly God who's making our life miserable for reasons that we can never know. So some people emerge from this kind of intense hardship distant from God or not believing at all. And others emerge seething with anger against him. But God's primary goal isn't our comfort. Look again at the back half of verse 10. He's doing this for our good. What is our good? What is it he knows is good for us? That we may share in his holiness. God's primary goal for us isn't our comfort. God knows that our greatest good is not our comfort, but our conformity to Christ. So God's goal for us is that we grow more and more like Jesus. That changes everything. Because these old sinful bones don't want to be like Jesus. They want to keep lying on the couch, being a couch potato. They don't want to get up and run a 5K. So God has to use discipline. He has to rattle us. He has to apply a bit of pressure. He creates a crucible in which we can be refined. God's goal is that we grow more and more like Jesus. And His means of that goal involves hardship. So catch the paradigm shift then. The trials in our lives are often a sign of God's love, not of His judgment. Now there are other scripture passages that talk about how sometimes God brings judgment in response to sin. So it's not, this isn't an absolute statement. But I'm I'm talking about at a paradigm shift level, this is what I'm trying to say, that the trials in your life may be a sign of God's love, not of his judgment. They are good. They're placed there by a good father. They prove that that good father loves you. They're placed there to grow you in the most important of ways. Tevya thought that their conversation was from a hard-hearted butcher who wanted to buy away his livelihood. But Laser Wolf was coming to him because he loved his daughter 
and wanted to marry her. We think our hardships come from a hard-hearted or absentee God who is either smiting us or too busy to care. But God brings those hardships to us precisely because he loves us so much, because he wants our good more than anything else. Just think about the hardship that you're facing right now. How have you been thinking about it over the last week or month or years? Take those thoughts. Doesn't this passage turn it completely on its head? You see, God wants me to be more like Jesus. He wants me to be more like Jesus because he knows it will make me a better pastor to you. He wants me to be more like Jesus because he knows it will make me a better dad to my children. He wants me to be more like Jesus because he knows it will make me a better husband to Karen. He wants me to be more like Jesus because that will bring me the most wholeness and joy. You can summarize all those things by saying this. He wants me to be more like Jesus because it extends or magnifies his goodness to many others. In other words, it glorifies him. And so that the trials he's taken me through over the last months, the trials he's taken you through, are with the express purpose of making me more like Jesus. He brings our trials upon us not to beat us down and bludgeon us. He brings them because he loves you. Because he wants your good. He wants you to grow. Now the end of verse 11 adds an important clarification to this point. Because hardship doesn't always produce good fruit. Look at the end of verse 11. It yields its peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Implied, if you don't allow trials to train you, they can shrivel you up. They can twist your soul. But if you allow them to train you in the good ways that God intends, they produce... Two key fruits. I was working at a conceptual level, but I just want you to see these two key fruits. At the end of verse 11, his holiness, or at the end of verse 10, his holiness, in the middle of verse 11, peace. Peaceful fruit of righteousness. A righteousness that brings peace. So your hardships are from a good God. They're a sign of his love for you. He has good intentions in them. Do you see then what I mean when I say this sermon should shift the paradigm for how we view hardship? 
been a good passage for me to be in. Now, it's not that these thoughts are entirely new to me. Perhaps I wasn't as far off as Tevye was in the conversation that he had. But it still reoriented me to thinking about hardship in a helpful way. If God has sent these hardships, they're good. They'll make me more like Jesus. Now, if God is using this passage for you this morning in the same way he's been using it for me, you'll notice it's not just your mind that shifts. According to verses 12 to 17, there are two other changes that will follow that mind shift or that paradigm shift. First is brought out in verses 12 and 13. Your flagging sails will be filled afresh with wind. Listen. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What do hardships tend to do? They tend to make our hands droop and our knees weak and our joints lame. I can remember in one particularly hard season, I'd reach the end of the night and I'd just sit on the couch shell-shocked. I couldn't do anything for a while. But when you change how you view hardships, your whole outlook changes. When you see your trial as a good gift from God meant to make you more like Jesus, instead of shrinking under it, you lean into it because you trust God to Keep it on you as long as he sees fit. And so you walk closely with him through it. Now that doesn't make discipline suddenly fun and pleasant. Verse 11 says discipline for the moment seems painful rather than pleasant. And it is. But once you know who your God is, once you see that the all-powerful king of the universe is a loving tender father to you who desires your good, once that mind shift happens, you'll find yourself bowing up under the trials instead of wilting under them. So the first change, according to verse 12 through 13, the first change you notice when the paradigm shift happens is that hardship, or is that you'll find the wind in your sails again. You'll be able to endure because you know it is for discipline, that is for good, that you have to endure. Now the second change you'll notice is in verses 14 to 17. And it's you're going to grow in two specific areas. Peace and holiness. Listen to verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The hardship that comes upon our lives as a result of the Lord's discipline 
is designed to make us more peaceable and more holy. I want to say a word about peace. There's this thing in sports, team sports, they talk about team chemistry. I think it's pretty important. But team chemistry usually goes like this. If you're winning, team chemistry is good. If you're losing, team chemistry is bad. That's because hardship typically breeds conflict. But when this paradigm shift happens, that's no longer true with us. Trials for us should make us more tender-hearted, more empathetic, more eager to walk with others who are suffering. For the Christian, hardship makes us more peaceable and also more holy. Now when it says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, it's not telling us that you have to accrue a certain amount of holiness, and once you fill up your holiness tank, then you get to go to heaven. It's just saying that once the Holy Spirit actually works in you, there's a certain fruit that he produces. There is a a sanctifying that begins to happen because of his work. And if you haven't seen any change in your life, if there's no fruit to your confession of faith, you ought not think that you have been changed by God. You ought not think that you belong to Him. You ought not think you're indwelt by the Spirit. So that's what it's talking about there. Not, Not some level of holiness you have to attain to in order to get into heaven. Think of one of the dearest, most beautiful Christians that you know. They've likely been through some hard times. And I think if you talk to them, they'd say those trials have made them who they are today. Tender-hearted. Righteous. Unshakable. Peaceable. Gentle. Loving. Now it's just it's not saying here that these are changes that automatically happen when our mind shift changes. These are commands of things we are to do. See, seeing trials as sent by a loving Father who wants our good will motivate us to pursue peace and holiness. In other words, if I know God has something really good in this, He's trying to help me grow more like Jesus, that's why He has that, then all of a sudden that's what I'm running after because that's what I know He wants to produce in me. But if you see God as some curmudgeon or some absentee dad, then you'll shrink back from those very things. Now verse 14 tells us how that paradigm shift affects what we pursue. Verses 15 to 17 warn us of the danger that comes from not pursuing these. They tell us of the danger of not allowing our God-given hardships to, quote, train us. Now, by this point in the book of Hebrews, it shouldn't surprise us that there are those who appear, appear to be a part of God's community who end up falling short of the reward. 
But we, here it's telling us, we are to make every effort to help each other avoid this awful outcome. Verse 15 starts with, see to it. And that's a plural command. So you could translate it, all of you together, see to it. One pastor explained it saying, we are called to some sanctified meddling in each other's lives. So let's be on the lookout for each other. When one in our church starts to lag, let's gather around him and spur him on to the finish line. Let's make it our goal that every member of Maple Avenue reach the finish line and obtain the grace of God. The author accentuates this warning with two Old Testament warnings that show the urgency of it. The first is from Deuteronomy 29, where there's a root of bitterness. Now, the root of bitterness in Deuteronomy 29 isn't bitterness itself. The root is actually self-deception. It refers to someone who thinks they can keep following God and also continue down their stubborn rebellion against Him. You see, they're self-deluded. I can have God and keep sinning. Now, it's called a bitter root because it is something that can contaminate the whole community. It's a poisonous root. It's a root that is bad for everybody. So when the author tells us about the root of bitterness, it's a reminder that sin can play games with us. So we need to be on guard and not think that we can serve God and continue stubbornly in our own sin. The second Old Testament warning is from Genesis 25 relating to the story of Esau and his birthright. Esau has a birthright that for him would have put him in line to receive the blessings that God had promised to Abraham his grandfather and Isaac his father. But Esau, on the pages of Scripture, is a man who's caught up in the here and now and the lusts of the moment. And so he comes home from hunting, and he wants food. And he wants it so bad, he's willing to trade his birthright for a bowl of soup. And his decision, the author points out, has irreversible and horrible consequences. He later repented with tears, but to no avail. the sweet and alluring pleasures of sin may tempt us, but we must not give in to them. We must see God's promises and rewards as infinitely more valuable. And we need to see the dangers of pursuing our sins. They're devastating and sometimes irreversible. So so the root of bitterness teaches us sin can be deceptive, and Esau teaches us that the allure of instant pleasure can be blinding. Deceptive, blinding, so we need one another. So just to kind of put all the pieces together again, once your thinking, once your paradigm is shifted about hardship, it fills your soul with winds, fills the sail of your soul with winds. And it motivates you to pursue peace 
and holiness in the midst of your hardship. Instead of making you disagreeable and lust-driven, it makes you pursue peace and holiness. Now, I've alluded to the fact that God has allowed me to go through some hardship as of late. So this passage is timely for me. It's needed and good for my own soul. I believe many of you here are in that same situation. Perhaps your hardships are far more intense than mine. My prayer with this sermon is that God would use it to reframe our entire view of those hardships. They're not a result of God being absent or vindictive. They're actually a result of a God who loves you with a tender, fatherly love. And they're His means to accomplishing what is most important, our conformity to Christ. My prayer is that this shift in thinking would change everything that would fill your flagging souls with wind and that it drive you to grow in peace and holiness.